This is Jamda On The Go, your review of the content featured in Jamda, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the positions of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now, here's our host for Jamda on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Hello, and welcome to Jamda on the Go for July 2023. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast. I hope everyone's enjoying a great summer so far. And today, it's my pleasure to welcome both of our co-editors-in-chief of Jamda, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, Drs. Paul Katz and Barbara Resnick. This afternoon, we're also delighted to have the opportunity to talk with the authors of two JAMDA articles from the July issue. We hope you're continuing to like our new interactive format, where we invite the actual content experts who did the research. Dr. Katz is Professor of Geriatrics at Florida State University and also serves as Medical Director for Westminster Communities of Florida and Presbyterian Senior Living based in Pennsylvania. He's a past president of AMDA with a research focus on medical staff organization and its relationship to quality. Paul is a certified medical director with over 40 years of clinical experience in nursing homes, assisted living, and outpatient geriatric care. Barbara Resnick, PhD, CRNP, is a professor in the Department of Organizational Systems and Adult Health at the University of Maryland School of Nursing. She teaches in the Adult Gerontological Nurse Practitioner Program and Doctoral Program and co-directs the Biology and Behavior Across the Lifespan Research Center of Excellence. Barb holds the Gershowitz Chair in Gerontology, does research in all settings of care, and also has over 40 years of clinical practice, which is currently in assisted living and other senior housing communities. Now, today we also have the pleasure of welcoming to Jamda On The Go two authors of papers we'll be discussing. Dr. Jennifer Recre and Darley Dash. Jennifer M. Recre, MD, is an associate professor at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. She's a health services researcher and geriatrician who provides primary care to people at home as part of the Mount Sinai Visiting Doctors Program. Her research examines how home-based models of clinical and long-term care support individuals with dementia and other serious illnesses who are still living in the community. In particular, she's interested in the role of paid caregivers like home health aides, personal care attendants, and other direct care workers on the home-based dementia care team and how the care they provide matters for families, patients, and the medical care system as a whole. And finally, Darley Dash, Master of Science, is a PhD candidate in health research methodology at McMaster University in Canada, and she conducts health services research. She works under the supervision of Dr. Andrew Costa, using large data sets and leading observational studies. Her PhD research is funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and focuses on investigating the practices of long-term care physicians to understand commitment and quality of care delivered to residents by medical care providers. All right, so today your editors have chosen three articles that we'll be highlighting from the July issue that we think will be of particular interest to our audience. These topics include a study describing the use of home-based clinical care and home-based long-term care services and supports among Medicare beneficiaries, 
an examination of the practice patterns and trends of long-term care physicians in Ontario, and a study identifying risk factors for falls among individuals with mild cognitive impairment. So welcome, Drs. Katz, Rusnik, and Rekri, and Ms. Dash. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Great to be here, Carl. All right. So um, we're going to start out by discussing Dr. Jenny Rekri et al.'s article, Use of Home-Based Clinical Care and Long-Term Services and Supports Among Homebound Older Adults. And uh, Jenny, I noticed that one of your co-authors is my former California colleague, now Boston colleague, Dr. Christine Ritchie, uh, and uh, she's great. So uh, anyway, can you please start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your team in New York and elsewhere? Sure. Um, and again, thanks for having me. Um, so I'm Jenny Recre, and um, I'm here at Mount Sinai in New York City. Um, my primary collaborator for this project was Catherine Ornstein, who's my longtime um, mentor and collaborator, and she's now at the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing. Um, Duji Zhao on the team helped with data analysis. And the project really was a part of a larger PO1 um, that's led by both Catherine and Christine Ritchie, who you said is now at MGH. And for the project, we brought on Bruce Leff, who's at Hopkins in the School of Medicine, and Robin Stone from Leading Age for their expertise. Um, first, you know, for Bruce and sort of home-based clinical care, and Robin in long-term services and supports. And I think the idea of sort of pulling everybody together like this was to really think about that full range of, you know, clinical care and long-term services and supports in the home. Yeah, well, that's really an all-star team. Uh, so you've kind of said it, but what was the impetus for exploring this issue? I mean, I think it's, you know, I think it's really that, you know, for an older adult who has, um, you know, has functional impairment, has serious illness, difficulty leaving the home, you know, it takes a lot to have them be able to stay in that home and community setting. Um, and home-based clinical care is a big part of this. And our group focuses a lot on models of home-based clinical care. Um, but I think, you know, the reality for people if they have functional impairment is that, you know, in order to have that clinical care in the first place, they they need long-term care. You know, they need ongoing support with their, with their functional care needs. Um, and, you know, my focus in general with my research really is on paid caregiving. Um, but the hope with this project was to be really broad in terms of how we defined home-based clinical care and how we defined home-based long-term care to just get a sense of that big picture of care um, that people are using. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, you know, there's been a lot more interest in this. Uh, I mean, many of us who who do hospice and so on, um, you know, have been making home visits for many years, and it certainly gives you a, a totally different and much bigger perspective about what the person's lived experience is, uh, uh, but it's also maybe not always the most efficient when you're talking about, you know, driving from one person's house to another person's house uh, and that sort of thing. So uh, did you encounter challenges in conducting this study? Yeah, I mean, definitely. So the study used the National Health and Aging Trends Study, which is a big nationally representative um, longitudinal study of Medicare beneficiaries. And we linked 
the that to fee-for-service Medicare claims to really look at that home-based clinical care. So um, that approach is great in the sense that, you know, you see what people, what care people are utilizing, but then can kind of do this deep dive into who they are and what that context is like, um, but can be a little bit challenging because once you link with claims, there's a lot of really uh, important protections in place to make sure that you're not disclosing information that could identify people associated with those claims. And, and what that translates into is as you get to smaller and smaller groups, you, you can't report those findings. And so mm. in our paper, we talk about people, um, the services people receive in terms of the range. Is it low? Is it medium? Is it high? And some of that is just because that really granular granular detail, um, we just couldn't get to because we use complete use claims. And so it was a it was tricky. And we tried to figure out ways to still really communicate our main study findings, but again, without without being able to pin down those exact numbers of how people were using services and supports. Right. So what are the main take-home messages from the study? Um, well, I think two things. So, I mean, the first, we we saw, you know, about 30% of these homebound people use some form of home-based clinical care, and it was mostly skilled home health. Um, about 80% use some form of long-term services and supports, but, but it was a lot of assistive devices and home modifications. And, you know, I guess in some ways we saw there was a lot of, of care services and supports, but but given we were looking at a homebound population, we were actually surprised that people weren't using weren't using more. And and I think you know it gets at that, you know, we don't know why, right? Is it a problem with acceptability? Is it availability? Is it the affordability of those services? I think there's probably a lot going on with the affordability of services. Um, but I think you know that thought that maybe people aren't necessarily getting that care services and supports that would be beneficial is important. Um, and the second take-home message is, you know, we did a latent class analysis sort of trying to look at how the home-based clinical care and the long-term services and supports group together, sort of, you know, we kind of thought actually that there would be a group who was getting a little bit of everything, you know, who was kind of keyed into the system and taken care of. And, and that turned out to be not the case. You know, there was a pretty sizable group who didn't get too much um, either home-based clinical care or services and supports. Um, they tended to be a little younger and healthier overall. Um, but in the other group, you know, the other two groups, we saw some with home-based medical care, some more with this skilled nursing. But the bottom line is they all kind of had sort of a smattering of long-term services and supports. And, and there wasn't where, you know, one group really kind of had it all. We tried to do a little deeper dive to see how these things fit together just in that long-term services and supports group. And we saw that, you know, a lot of people had one service or one support or, and, but, but very few people really had this full complement of, of supports in the community. And did you find any sort of uh, equity concerns when you were going through this? Because obviously people with more resources can afford to access more services, right, and stay home longer. Yeah, I think, I mean, we, this, so that's a perfect example of where we weren't able necessarily to get that granular uh, to be able to, to to see some of those differences. I mean, we saw some we didn't see any major patterns related to that. And I think this is always one of the things that's tricky, particularly with these long-term services and supports in the community is that many are funded by Medicaid, which mm. 
know, people are able to access with lower incomes. And, you know, perhaps there's a bit of a U shape to it. Um, but the other piece is that some of these long-term services and supports, you know, things like assistive devices or home modifications may be covered by Medicare too. So I think there's a lot of interesting questions about affordability, um, but it's but it gets pretty nuanced when you do that deep dive. And, and we weren't able to quite do that in, in this project. Oh, great. Well, um, and how do you think your findings might change clinical practice, if at all? I mean, I think, I guess to me, it's that take-home thing where, you know, if just because somebody has home-based primary care, for example, doesn't mean that they have all those other things they need. And the same for long-term services and support. Somebody may have home-delivered meals, but but not be keyed into this other forms of care. And so, I mean, I think that's the clinical implication is that, you know, when you as a clinician or provider see someone, you know, in a home and community based setting who, you know, has has some of of these of this care and maybe needs more. I think we need to be more proactive about co connecting people because because, again, you know, just because someone's connected in one way doesn't mean they have the access they they need in other areas. Yeah, I think that's a great that's a great message uh, for our listeners. Uh, so, uh, finally, do you believe your work is sustainable? And what uh, would you suggest, uh, if anything, as a next step in research here in this, this arena? I mean, you talked about possibly getting more granular, although there's challenges with that. Anything else? I mean, I think it's sustainable. You know, I think with these big data sets, it's tough. There's always something that they're not able to give you, but, you know, but I think they can give a lot. And, and I think it's really underexplored, you know, and in terms of next steps, I think this idea of the long-term services and supports people are getting in the community, I think that's really an important thing. And that, you know, I think there's more work around Medicaid funded supports, but, but I think, the, these results suggest that a lot of people kind of piecemeal it together and and thinking of it through a lens of payer, you may miss something important and, you know, mm -hmm. really doing more more work to understand kind of big picture how how the care that's being delivered and sort of how it fits into that broader um broader functional need. I think I think there's a lot there, and I'm excited to kind of keep doing work in that area to learn more. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, Barb, Paul, any any questions or concerns? Yeah, this is Paul. Jenny, thank you so much for that uh, great uh, summary. Uh, your, your work obviously highlights a very important issue impacting care in the homes, as you've uh, uh, articulated. Uh, one question, did the patterns of the home-based care include those people living in assisted living and other residential settings? Yeah, so we we didn't. So no, we excluded people who were in residential settings or in assisted living, um, just because we thought that the long term services and supports, you know, we would. We, they were receiving from a different source, right? And they're not reflected in NHATS in the same way. And when people are in those, those settings, it's really tricky to see what services they're actually getting. I mean, we did include what we defined as senior housing. So people using NHATS have kind of made this distinction between um, sort of assisted living, which I guess provides more clinical services and more supportive housing or senior housing. So while we did include that piece, we excluded the assisted living and, and, and the other facility-based groups. Yeah. And one final question, Jenny, it, um, and this may be an area for future research. Were you able to get a sense of uh, the dynamic nature of uh, home-based services? That is the change over time in terms of intensity and the, the makeup of the types of services that are delivered to an individual? Yeah, that's the really no. And so the short answer is no, but but I think that's absolutely interesting and 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 
and really important because I think we think of these things often as like once they're in place, they stay in place. But, you know, I know a little more about the home-based medical care world. And that's certainly not true there. You know, a lot of this is episodic or it's short. And I think services that are delivered, for example, through community-based organizations may de be dependent on time-limited funding. So I think there's a lot there. And, um, you know, there's there's a lot of, of room to really understand what's happening and understand the patterns in a different way. So I think that longitudinal piece would be also a great, great next step. Great. Well, th thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Just on a final note, I would hope as somebody, and I currently am doing house calls, so get the world, but I hope that you'll move on to looking prospectively and really begin to take that deeper dive because there is, I believe as we discussed, possibly some inequities out there, as well as appropriateness of services and the longitudinal piece, like when you don't need the oxygen anymore, what happens? Uh, I, there's a lot that can be looked at. So I hope you'll continue with this work. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point. And and I do think with this retrospective data, it's it is hard to get at whether like what what the need really is, right? You know what it happens, but you don't quite have that why. So yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of really interesting, interesting things. And I hope in general this is a topic that people are interested in and study more. Yeah. All right. Well, that's been some great discussion and perspective. So, Dr. Recre, many thanks for taking the time to chat with us today on Jammed On The Go. Thank you and, for having me. Yeah. And our second paper for discussion is going to be, did the long-term care physician workforce change during the pandemic? Describing MRP, and that means most responsible provider, trends in Ontario, Canada of which Darley Dash is the lead author. So Darley, can you please tell us a bit about your team at McMaster? Absolutely, thanks for having me here today. So I'm a PhD candidate and our team is the Big Data and Geriatric Models of Care Research Cluster. And uh, we're located throughout Canada and we're a collection of scientists and clinicians who use big data to inform models of care for older adults. And this is across different care settings. Uh, so community care, retirement homes or assisted living, hospitals and emergency care. And of course, for the focus of this paper, uh, long-term care or nursing homes. Our team is led by Dr. Andrew Costa, who is my supervisor and also the senior author of this paper. Great. And so uh, what was the impetus for exploring this issue? That's a great question, Carl. Um, there were a few things we knew we were seeing from all the things in the media, in our own lives and our work, and I'm sure we all here can attest to that. Uh, we knew long-term care residents were very heavily impacted by the pandemic. We know there were lots of problems with the nursing staff in the homes and that many weren't working in. There were others who had to step in, but we didn't hear too much about the physician side of things. We also anecdotally have heard that there's this great retirement of physicians in the healthcare <laughs> workforce, that there's been this radical change, but there's no good population level information out there on whether these things are happening. So given all this, given my interest in the physician practices uh, for long-term care in my thesis, 
was a bit of a high impact curiosity on my part to explore what these practice patterns were of long-term care physicians and how things have might have changed over the course of the pandemic. Like really, was there this constriction of the workforce? What was this evolution over various time periods of the pandemic? <laughs> yeah. Hey, maybe you can uh, come down south of the border and do a little work down here. I, you know, we keep uh, there's all these observations about less people, uh, less docs working in skilled nursing facilities and so on. But it's really hard to quantify. Uh, it's, there's lots of anecdotes. So uh, I'm glad you did this work. So did you encounter any challenges in in uh, performing the study and analyzing the data? Um. I would say, Carl, that it's a retrospective descriptive study. So we didn't encounter those typical challenges like recruiting and following people prospectively. But something for our, uh, that was a challenge for us that we were really thinking about was these time periods and what would be the best opportunity to conduct this analysis. As you know, as we all know, there were lots of ups and downs with the pandemic. Infection and spread was very different based on where you live. So identifying a post-pandemic period was really nearly impossible for us to determine what the ideal time was to conduct this study. And policies and procedures were so different in long-term care versus the general public and what was happening in the community. So at the end of it, we decided to start with a period right before the start of the pandemic. And then we studied these physicians for two years to understand what the practice patterns would be. Hmm. Well, that makes sense. And so what did you learn? What were your take-home messages? Uh, and is there anything we can use that will uh, help us? Yeah, um, so there was much anticipation of that radical change, but we observed that wasn't the case. So Ontario is Canada's largest province, and we saw that that long-term care physician workforce reduced over time periods of the pandemic by about 12%. And the average resident caseload was also reduced by about 7%. Now, what could this mean? You know, it might mean that physicians delivered care to fewer residents and they had fewer colleagues to lean on in this care setting. That's very much an interdisciplinary approach to care. That might have contributed to some of the challenges that have occurred in the long-term care setting. But I just wanna point out that these aren't big numbers, 12 and 7%. It may not be drastic, so at the same time, uh, people who work in the sector might not think it's that big, but at the same time, other side of it is those people working could really feel strapped by this 12% reduction in the workforce and the 7% reduction in the resident caseload. I think it's really up to our listeners to think about it in their own practice uh, or those they know um, what this might really mean for what they observed during the pandemic. The other thing I'll share is um, with our study, we saw that the workforce really itself hasn't changed. It's the same situation as before in terms of demographic. We didn't see this great retirement, right? Hmm. Um, mostly older men, family physicians, been practicing in the care setting for a long time. So what that suggests is really we saw some stability. There wasn't this great retirement. These anecdotes of all the change, but we're largely back to the future. Slight changes, practice was dis uh, disrupted, but the workforce hasn't changed, just a little bit smaller. It hasn't improved or really gotten that much worse, and they're facing the same challenges that they did pre-pandemic. 
<laughs> All right. I don't know if you have any ideas about how to recruit more people to work in this setting, but you know, with the 12% loss, I mean, if that's a continuing trend, uh, our, our nursing home residents may be in trouble. And so might those of us who choose to continue to practice, but uh, yeah. Um, and I'm assuming that this, this uh, drop didn't, just correspond to also a drop in the number of residents that were in the facilities during these times. Is that right? Uh, yes and no. And in Ontario, we had different policies with regards to like the number of residents in rooms. We have some places where there can be up to four individuals in the room. So mm -hmm. there were some policy decisions to restrict the number of residents being admitted into long-term care that, um, may also influence this 7% drop in the residents. Hmm. Well, so, I mean, it sounds like one thing you would suggest as the next step, maybe would be to just continue uh, the sort of data analysis, maybe with the, the same group of physicians in your area. What else would you recommend to our listeners, other researchers, uh, if anything? I uh, totally agree with you there, Carl. We've really only scratched the surface here about understanding physicians. Um, I think there's lots of questions here, like understanding if this reduction actually contributed to some of the crises we saw. Um, it's hard to know whether physicians are on-site, remote, or virtual, and what impact that has. Were they actually stretched by this reduction in their in their colleagues? And how does this impact the whole uh, relationship among residents, families, care staff? Uh, did it affect physician access to the physician and those continuity relationships? So these are some unanswered questions. I'm also interested in my own work and continuing to examine the practices of long-term care physicians. Uh, so I want to look into things like commitment to the sector. I also want to see how that um, relates to quality of care outcomes and what practice-based quality looks like for medical care providers. Mm -hmm, that's great. So I didn't hear any recruitment ideas. So how do we get people to work in this setting? Any uh, any bright ideas you can share? You, you're you young and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, so uh, we're listening. Oh man, that's a tough one, Carl. Um, you know, in our medical school at McMaster, there is a lot of focus on geriatrics and bringing uh, people in an in interest in that. Um, we're seeing more interest in having certain pro educational programs. For example, we have something called Make a New Old Friend at McMaster, where we connect them to different long-term care groups and have them go practice there. Uh, I think it's really important to have great leaders like Paul and others who are working in long-term care um, bring that attention to light to these new generation of, of medical students. I will point out one thing. The thing we did notice in our study was um, the ones who were new to long-term care practice, they were entering within five years or less. So I think that's positive. They were entering into long-term care practice so soon after graduation. Mm. Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, one thing is, especially for the younger generation, uh, a certain amount of flexibility of scheduling and things like that can be very important. So that's certainly a selling point for our uh, our sector. Um, Paul, uh, Barb, any any questions or insights for Darley? Well, uh, yeah, this is Paul. And, you know, with uh, all transparency, uh, you know, I was uh, delighted to be a part of the group and continuing to work with Darley on um, uh, some of the research interests that she uh, has talked about. 
Uh, Darlene and I were actually talking recently about uh, some of the things that couldn't be measured. Um, this is more of a comment than a question. Uh, for example, nurse practitioners, Darlene tells me, uh, do not bill separately in Ontario. And uh, even though they bill significantly in the U.S., up to 30 to 40 percent of all billings, um, that wasn't captured. So the 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 role of the NP in in long term care in nursing homes in Ontario, I think, is still evolving. Is is that a fair statement, Darlie? Yeah, totally. It's a very much a new and emerging model um, in Canada overall, and in in Ontario for sure. And the the issue uh, in the U.S. Uh, you kind of alluded to it, Carl. Uh, we know we have a fair literature that's beginning to emerge on the role of what you know, so-called sniffus long-term care uh, physician specialist. But it's kind of, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, there is a proportion of um, medical providers in in nursing homes that devote mostly their entire practice to nursing home. So we're still trying to sort out in this country whether that translates to enhanced quality. There are some signals that it does, but it's really, really there are other things that that I think um, it's not only the uh, and that this this is why the commitment issue that Darley is uh, is going to look into is so important. It's not only it, the commitment of the physician; it's also that translates into how many what what is your volume of patient load. So uh, unfortunately, there are a number of uh, medical providers in the U.S., uh, and I, I would imagine some in Ontario that are very much uh, focused on volume and fee-for-service income and not quality, and that's what we have to sort out. Totally agree, Paul. There's a lot of things to think about here. There's a lot of work that we can do. Um, the nurse practitioners are very interesting. Uh, and a lot of interest is into that in Canada as well because of all the work emerging from the United States. Um, but until we can get some real data in Ontario, at least on nurse practitioners, it's really hard to know uh, how they function in long-term care. Are they functioning as the most responsible provider? Are they working more collaboratively? Um, but for now, they don't bill in our, in our uh, province. And they receive many of them receive a direct salary, so it's very much next to impossible right now to understand their practice until we can get some more insight into even how many nurse practitioners are there working in long-term care. Mm. Yeah, and in the U.S., I mean, uh, some states a nurse practitioner can uh, practice independently without supervision, and others they can't. So that's, uh, uh, but they do bill for their services unless they're employed by the facility. So. Uh, yeah, a lot to think about. Uh, and I guess uh, as I'm sitting here, um, another thing that might be attractive to to young clinicians uh, who are looking where to where they want to work is that this is a disadvantaged population. I mean, these are folks that, uh, you know, they're functionally dependent, maybe cognitively impaired. And, uh, you know, there's equity issues there. And for people who want to give something back to uh sort of a, you know, a disadvantaged population. This is a great way to do it. Um, so uh, any final comments on this? If not, I just want to thank you again, Darlie, for your great work. I hope it continues and uh, really appreciate the, the robust discussion. Thank you so much for having me.
All right. So, Paul, we're going to conclude with one additional article that we're hoping you can provide a synopsis of. The article is by Victoire Leroy and colleagues from the Centre Hospitalier Régional Universitaire de Tours in Tours, France. Yes, I practiced that. No, I didn't. And uh, it's entitled, What Factors Can Be Used to Identify Older Patients with Mild Cognitive Impairment at Risk for Falling? Findings from the Memento Cohort. Uh, thanks, Car uh, Carl. Uh, first, I was going to ask Darley, did he pronounce that correctly? Because um... <laughs> I took a lot of years of French. All right. All right. That's good. Uh, than... I think Carl knows uh, more French than I do, perhaps. Okay. All right. <laughs> I see. Um, anyway, the authors of this article question whether risk factors for falls in older patients uh, without cognitive decline were different in those with mild cognitive impairment or MCI. So uh, as the title alludes to, the analysis was conducted on a Memento cohort, which is a large French prospective cohort. The focus was on adults over age 65 with uh, MCI as defined by neuropsychological scores, as well as a short physical performance battery to give you uh, for their function. Fallers were defined as participants uh, having fallen at least once during the study's uh, two-year follow-up. Uh, and then the authors compared clinical, neuropsychological, and biological data at baseline in fallers versus non-fallers in, in this group with MCI. They did some subgroup analysis were performed on, excuse me, women, men, and individuals 75 and over. So of the four, 1,416 people included in the study, 194 or 13.5% fell at least once. Um, a bivariate analysis showed that the fallers were older, predominantly women, less independent in activity daily living and more apathetic. Fallers also perform less well in executive function tests and as well as balance and gait tests. In a multivariable analysis, only age, gender, the number of limitations in instrumental activity daily living and living alone were significantly associated with falls. Uh, in the multivariable analysis of the subgroup of oldest patients and of the subgroup of men, executive function was significantly worse in the fallers versus the non-fallers. So in essence, these results demonstrate that easily obtainable risk factors can be used to identify individuals with MCI that have a higher risk of falls and importantly, for whom prevention might be beneficial. Uh, future studies are needed, of course, to further evaluate the role of um, mild executive dysfunction in certain subgroups, such as men and older patients. Uh, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, so I mean, I guess this study shows some fairly intuitive findings, you know, like uh, that people who are more IADL dependent are more likely to fall than the more independent ones. And I mean, I suspect that would be true even for people without MCI or any cognitive impairment at all. So, Paul, Barb, um, let's suppose that we clinicians start screening patients with MCI for these parameters and identify those who seem to be at increased risk for falls. What evidence-based fall prevention interventions would you recommend for those people? So, as, as somebody who does a lot of falls research and intervention work, I would say this study was very confirming 
We know if you're impaired, we certainly don't want to be leaving you alone, particularly if there's executive function impairment, right? So I think the focus really needs to go next step is exactly what you asked, Carl, what works. We know physical activity, optimizing balance, optimizing function is going to help to prevent a fall. At least let somebody get there while you're still standing. If those quad muscles are strong enough and butt muscles are strong enough to hold you up. So I always feel like less focus on um, having nurses, for example, just check off risk factors and greater focus on getting people moving. Amen. Paul, anything to add? Uh, no, the, I think uh, it, to what uh, Barb just said about a kind of a multi-component exercise uh, involving balance, flexibility, and strength resistance training. The other thing uh, that, of course, we know in geriatrics is always to do a good medication review, since medications are often uh, involved in some fashion in fall risk and injurious fall. So, yeah, it's uh, it's not easy. Because, you know, doing all of this um, uh, is difficult sometimes in people who um, who don't have access to a lot of the services. I, that's great geriatrician advice from both of you, right? Uh, uh, do more exercise, get your quad and butt muscles strong, and uh, don't take too many medications. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a, a wonderful note. I mean, that probably shouldn't just apply to people with MCI who are at high risk for falling. That should be every dang one, right? Uh, so, well, uh, any final comments from either of our co-editors before we wrap up? No, just on the... Uh, and side of the world, there is, it, it's a little bit older now and hopefully will be revived at some point, but AMDA does have a nice uh, falls clinical practice guideline that provides a really nice multi-component approach to falls prevention. Yep. Thank you for plugging that in. It, it is an excellent resource and uh, uh, even in its current state, and I think it is going to be updated before too long. Um all right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this Jammed on the Go podcast. Thanks again to our guest presenters for a great discussion. And thanks as always to our editors and the staff from Elsevier and AMDA, whose efforts continue to generate one great Jammed volume and Jammed on the Go podcast after another. So please take a look at the July 2023 issue. The references for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. That's J-A-M-D-A. Until next month, this is Dr. Carl Steinberg signing off for Jamda on the Go. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast.